0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Motorsport Magazine Issue Preview Podcast. We are going to be talking about the current issue, the September issue of the magazine, which is in the newsagents now. Subscribers hopefully got theirs a couple of days ago. It's the the issue with an enormously aggressive-looking Porsche 919 Evo bursting out of the front cover. And what we hope to do with this podcast is just look... Behind the scenes, and talk a little bit about the various stories that have appeared in uh, the magazine, and hopefully offer an insight into how they how they came about. I'm joined today by Lyndon McNeil, the staff photographer. Hello. Simon Aaron, our features editor. Hi, Joe. Uh, Jack Phillips, the digital editor. Hello. And Samarth Kanil, our staff writer. Hello. And I'm Joe Dunn, the motorsport magazine editor. Let's start off just by talking a little bit about the. Cover story here, um, a Porsche going flat out on the Nurburgring. Simon,
1: yeah, it's uh, sort of a mixed, mixed emotions attached to this one because when Stefan Bellof set his fabled Nordschleifer Lab record in 1983, the circuit had already slightly been sawn off in preparation for the new circuit being built next door. So it wasn't the full full Nordschleifer, but it was still, you know a very long circuit and that lap time he did it was in the context of the time it was so much faster than anyone else was able to go that weekend um, and it's just obviously the Nürburgring ceased to welcome major international series at the end of 83 the year when off did his time so that stood as one of these quirky motor racing landmarks that at the time everyone said wow but sort of 30-35 years later when no one's had a chance to go anywhere near it um, it's even more wow and porsche and i think it's, to porsche's great credit in some ways that rather than so it
0: was a it was a lap record which has stood the test of time and presumably what well, we had all thought would never be beaten
1: uh, well absolutely because what were the chances of a world endurance we knew formula one was never going to go back to the nordschleife in all likelihood the world endurance championship was never going to go back there and the gt3 cars that race in the nordschleife now in various endurance events wonderful though they are to behold they're never going to go at 956 speed or at least not in our lifetimes, I don't imagine. Um, so I think it's to Porsche's great credit that rather than just pensioning off the 919s when they pulled the plug on the World Endurance Championship program, that they decided to do something with them, which is you know, they broke the they beat the Formula One pole position time at Spa, and then um, with Timo e Bernhard they went off to Nordschleife just to see if, how close they could get to Bell of on record. Truth was, the girl, was it a mini under nearly a minute, nearly a minute under, yeah. <laughs> well before um,
0: we before we get there, should we just say that um, we, I mean we we sort of su- after spa we sort of suspected that Porsche might be doing this, but, oh, but we weren't yeah. sure. Um, uh, and then we got a phone call from Dicky Meaden who said that he had heard. From Porsche, that they would indeed be attempting this lap record. It was going to be hush hush. I mean, partly, I think, because it was quite a sensitive record for Porsche to be trying to challenge, um, but also because presumably they weren't entirely sure that they were going to do it. And there's nothing worse than announcing to the world you're going to go for How a good track record. Be
2: and then fail <laughs> flat on the face <laughs> in front of the world. It's yeah. worse,
0: worse than not I mean,
1: doing it at all. Obviously, obviously the technology has moved on a hell of a lot since the Porsche 956, um, and they did. All the neat little tricks I mean fairing mm. in the headlight covers to make it more aerodynamic, taking off the wheel jacks, getting rid of every single microgram of weight that they could to make it as fast. But it's still in This is Schleifer. on the 919 Evo, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, on the 919 so act, Evo. Sorry, I should have said that. On the 919 Evo, To make it absolutely as fast as it could possibly be. But it's still a Nordschleifer. You still haven't got the right to make an error on the Nordschleifer. You still need Range Rover type suspension to cope with. The 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 bumps and ruts of the Um so there was no even though clearly the car had the potential to be much faster than a nine five six, there's absolutely no guarantee that Timo wouldn't make a mistake or you know some little foible wouldn't wouldn't, wouldn't get in the way. So um, for it to run as smoothly as it did, I think it did three time laps, each one successively faster, each one successively faster than Belloff's record. Was um, it, it's a I don't regard it as a true lap record. I still think that's Belloff's. But <laughs> as, a, as an engineering exercise, I think it's got great merit. And Porsche, of all companies, had the right to have a go at it because it was in a 956 that Beloff set the record in the first place. Absolutely.
3: fellas record is still a record. This absolutely, is yeah, because this, this is completely unofficial. Absolutely.
1: Exactly.
0: Yes. Well, Jack, I mean, let me bring you in here. I mean, as a Beloff fan, I mean, have you got... I mean, we mentioned those sort of mixed emotions, really, about this record being being broken. I mean, what are your thoughts on it?
3: Um, I think it's... as a Feet of engineering, as Simon said, it stands up on its own. But as a record, it's, it's not bound to any regulations, so they can do whatever they want. So it is a fake record. Um, but you can't help but get wrapped up in it, I think. And that's
2: It's, it's slightly better them doing it in their than going off to Cadwell Park and trying to set the record. Wait, there. what's wrong with Cadwell
1: Park?
3: Oh, I'd, <laughs> watch, I'd watch that up the mountain and around <laughs> Cadwell Park.
1: They might need a quicker steering rack for Cadwell <laughs> yeah. Park, I think.
3: But I think we covered it online. Dicky filed, literally, basically, literally, as it crossed the the line, and quite a nice piece from there. Um, so I think it's yeah, you, you can't help but get wrapped up and.
1: Well, that's the thing. I done. mean,
0: Dicky did do. He's he's obviously he's written a really lovely piece, a really nuanced piece in 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 the magazine, and he also had. And what comes out is that he had great access on the day. Uh, he's stayed in the same hotel as the team the night before the attempt, um, and and you get a real sort of sense of even the Porsche engineers. I wouldn't say their misgivings, but their sort of sense that they were um, on hallowed ground here, uh, and uh, uh, even by attempting by attempting the record.
1: I think there's a lovely bit as well where Dickie's sitting watching the rerun with the Porsche engineers in the Porsche truck, yeah. and just yeah. the, the passion that everybody, and also the you know, the, the the reaction they give just how quick he is and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lovely, he kept, I think he captures the, the whole essence of the day beautifully and I think another thing that's worth saying is that motor racing is so homogenized in many ways nowadays that for a major manufacturer to go out and do something slightly left field like this is, is so unusual uh, by the standards of the modern day that it's, uh, you know, as Jack said, it does stand up on its own. Yeah.
0: And, uh, I mean, great story though it is, um, we wanted to make a cover story out of it. And so we, we then set about thinking about how we could add to that to that story. And, and the thing we, we kind of came up with was this idea of records or lap records or any kind of record, uh, motorsport record, being stranded in history. In other words, a record which for one reason or another was probably never going to be beaten. And we all put our heads together and we came up with... Uh, well, we came up about half a dozen, but we only had room for, for a few of them. The first one, of course, would be, uh, being motorsport, was um, Dennis Jenkinson's drive with uh, Sterling Moss in the uh, in the Mill Meagler, And that, that record will never be beaten for the simple fact that that race is no never longer held again, yeah. <laughs> never being held again. <laughs> Twice more, yeah. was it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But Andrew's done a lovely piece, hasn't he, um, on on. I mean, we, we all know the story, but he's done a great piece on, on why it was so quick and really kind of drilled down into the, into the nuts and bolts of the reasons behind the, the outrageous speed that they managed to get. It's, it's a very evocative piece, isn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, I think it's evocative is a central theme to all of, all of the pieces, we've, all, all of the record events we've chosen to cover, whether it be the Mille Mille, Barry Sheen's, outrageous 135-mile-hour race average <laughs> at Spa in 1977, it's, and, and Mattox has done that, and Gordon Cruikshank uh, surveying the fastest ever lap of the Targa Florio, which only had another year to run as a world championship event. All these things, I, I mean, I love, uh, you wouldn't let me use the word bastard in a, in a, in a headline on the Barry Sheen piece, but... Um, just what, think, just
0: they're, thinking they're, about readers.
1: Well, but it, I mean, talking about one of the engineers talking about how the tyres the were expanding and chafing against the frame uh, at, at high speed so there was a risk of a potential blowout and they had to make certain modifications to make sure that when the tyres expanded with the heat that they wouldn't chafe and wouldn't throw Barry Sheen off at 150 miles an hour or whatever. And they just said to him, yeah, we've done it and he trusted them completely and went out. Yeah. You know, whether that he put that thought to the back of his mind completely but just the sheer bravado of stuff like that. And 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 Moss putting his trust in Dennis Jenkinson with his toilet roll <laughs> paste notes, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, just extraordinary days and it's just nice to be I know the mealy media has appeared in the magazine many, many times. Uh, but it's always a story worth retelling.
0: And and from the sublime to the slightly, um, well, maybe not ridiculous, but certainly monotonous, um, (laughs) (laughs) Gordon Crickshank has also done a piece on a record for the, well, it's a distance record, isn't it? It's 300,000 kilometres non-stop in a pre-war Citroen, where they essentially drove around an oval track um, for, I can't remember how long it was now, but it was months, wasn't it? Three months. Three 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 months
1: around Montlary. I mean, Montlary is a great place. I think after a couple of weeks, one might tire of it, but uh, three months, yeah.
3: Is it also the last Citroen to cover (laughs) 300,000 (laughs) kilometres? Ouch.
0: Well, I mean, it's, uh, Gordon's sign-off is actually is rather nice because it's, it's, it's not so much that that record can't be beaten. It's, it's more a case of why would anyone want to try and beat it ever again? <laughs> so that's our cover story. Um, record, bre- And, of course, the whole feature is sort of sprinkled with weird and wonderful records from, from the world of motorsport just to, 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 to keep the pages turning. So, yeah, that's our, that's our cover story. Uh, moving on, uh, we go straight from uh, from a sort of look at history really into the modern day, and this is uh, a piece on Audi's Formula E program. This is the electric car uh, racing series. And Sam, you travelled to Zurich to witness these uh, the, or the team in action, and and you've framed it brilliantly, I thought, in this with this idea that it's no longer doing kind of traditional endurance racing, but many engineers from that team have now moved over into the Formula E. Uh, uh, team, and, and you're sort of contrasting the two. Um, wh- what, was it, what was it like, sort of, first of all, you know, being over there and, and talking to the guys? What was, what was a, the atmosphere of a Formula E race like?
4: Well, you know, it's funny, it's quite a makeshift paddock, and, and you see that they are still getting to grips with this new world. And that's obviously what the story's about. I think also a lot of people will see the Formula E here and think, oh, God, this isn't for me. And I'll admit, I scoffed at it in the first season, I didn't want to watch it. But what's funny is that the engineers here also admit that. So I feel like whether Formula E resonates with our readers or not, the attitudes of the engineers in Audi will definitely resonate with them, which was interesting. And, and they're so honest about the lack of noise, the lack of the fumes and the, and the
0: feelings that they got from Le Mans not transferring up to Formula E. They're so honest about missing that. So if, if they're missing that, where does Formula E make up for it in, in, in the sense that uh, it, it, where, does, where do they get their excitement from?
1: Well, I don't, I don't want to... The fact they're, not up, the story, they're yeah. not up all night. The race about, <laughs> twenty-four minutes, not bed, twenty-four yeah. hours. There is an Audi driver <laughs> who says exactly
4: that. He says, "I will not sit and watch a six-hour wet race, but I will sit and watch a Formula E race because it's so short." And I,
0: I think it's a generational divide in a, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, the location was interesting in itself.
4: Yeah, I mean, the media centre we sat in was uh, was actually an office building by day, and it, it was. I think you could say it's typical Swiss ingenuity and efficiency to see an office building converted so quickly, so efficiently into a media space. Um, I think to appease the office workers, they gave them the grandstand outside, which is fair play. But um, yeah, it was all these little touches that the private—it was a private organizer, not the government—so the government didn't pay any anything mm-hmm. for it. Um, it's all the little touches they'd done it. So did, did, the, did the
1: workers in the grandstand outside have to work while they were sitting in the grandstand or were they given the afternoon light? They
2: just enjoyed the sunshine. I think, yes. <laughs> yeah. It was baiting. I didn't think it, it was could even get a that It was a very hot weekend. Yeah. It was my first Sam's been, Sam was in Marrakesh yeah. for Formula E earlier this year and this was my first ever foray into electric racing and having watched it on TV and been a little bit dismissive of it I was actually quite excited about it. It's because it's on narrow tracks and quite enclosed in, it actually makes it exciting. I know it can look quite dull on TV, but to be there in the flesh, I was, I was quite wrapped up in it.
0: Because the other thing is, is, is obviously all, all the races take place on on city circuits, so it, it's obviously very different to being at a at a, at yeah. a racing circuit. I other mean, than in Monaco the or, of Zurich, or but, yeah, but yeah.
2: But to see how we we stayed over. So we didn't see the build up of the race but we were there for we were there the sunday after the race had, had finished and to see the whole city kind of being dismantled or the whole racetrack being dismantled again straight overnight and everyone back to work the following day because it was it was quite a yeah. it was the business area of town that had been taken over so be able to see it come in, disappear, and not a trace of it for everyone Monday morning was, was pretty Life impressive. Life went
4: back to normal. I mean, the speed cameras were turned back on, the parking meters probably were <laughs> I assume. Well, there was parking meters in the pit lane, Yeah, there was a parking meter in the pit lane. There was a speed camera along the main straight or turn yeah. three or something. It's
1: but but I, I agree with you completely about proximity, enhancing the sense of yeah. speed, because, I mean, it's the same in Monaco, which is the slowest ever on lap of the season, but it looks like the fastest because yeah. you're so flipping close. And um, I mean, I saw the Formula E cars, first time they're going to Battersea. Again, it's the same thing. I mean, although the performance in the overall scheme of things is relatively modest, you stick it in a tight, narrow, (laughs) tight confined space. It does make them look faster. It's also worth making a very important point, of course, that this was the first proper motor race in Switzerland since the '50s, and it's sort of uh, nice that uh, I know they've got no permanent circuits, but you know, hopefully, the the various Swiss championships over time have been based on hill climbs, which Switzerland does still a, has still, was still allowed and circuit races at Dijon, Hockenheim and Himmler and other circuits reasonably close to Switzerland, so I think the fact that circuit racing is back there for the first time in 60 plus years it, I, is I, nice.
2: And he'll be back again next year, I think it went down so well, there was big crowds, it was, it was a good event, I can't, I can't see them saying no to it. So yeah.
0: Well, if it takes Formula E to reintroduce motor racing to, to Switzerland, then, then so be it. I mean, uh, I think it's a, it's a great read, and, and Sam done a, done a really good really good bit of reportage, really, and reflecting what it's, what it's like on the ground. Um, I think it's
1: also just worth adding that um, Formula E, for all, pe- all the people are sniffy about it, has taken motor racing to London, which Bernie Eccleston failed to do, <laughs> Paris, which Bernie Eccleston failed to do, New York, which Bernie Eccleston failed to do with Formula One, and um, and has now broken the mould in Switzerland as well, so that's great. Yeah,
0: exactly. Uh, no, it's an innovative series in, in, in every sense, I think. So from the future, we go right back in time, um, turning the page, to Matt Oxley's uh, fantastic feature on MV Augusta. And uh, as we say, as it prepares uh, to return into, to mainstream motorcycle racing, we look back on the company's... Uh, history and particularly its founder Count Domenico Augusta, who uh, sort of built the Grand Prix team really out of nothing in, 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 in the sixties and seventies. But also we sort of, as well as the racing, we kind of delve into the slightly murky. I hesitate to use the word sort of mafia, but <laughs> I mean it's a it's 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 a murky family background, isn't it? With lots of intrigue uh, and various shenanigans going on, and Matt really brings that out. And it's a sort of it's a proper kind of page turning historical yarn with some lovely old old folk
2: Well there's beautiful old pictures um, which thankfully Matt helped supply so we um, knew where to go to but yeah it's just just incredible to read and you get yourself immersed and realise how MV just wanted to win everything yeah uh, moving on what have we got what
0: have we got next um, let's turn the page a, a you were there we've got a you were there special which is where we ask readers to send in photographs of themselves or uh, at an event that they attended and hopefully they can also supply some caption information uh, and then we then we run rerun the images and and what it tends to do is just give a real kind of worm's-eye view of, of various historical meetings from from years gone by Simon you usually sort of edit and compile these you were there. So caption. What's, 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 um, <laughs> well, caption <laughs> when the captions available. What, what's no, this one about? What, is it, um, what does it? shine a light into?
1: Well, this is it's quite an interesting. Brian Blair, the photographer involved in this instance, uh, is an enthusiastic amateur, and his stuff will be re- appearing in future magazines, I think, because he sent, well, his son Michael sent us so much stuff, and there's some frontline stuff from World Sports Car Championship races, and in this instance, the 1979 British Grand Prix meeting at Silverstone. Um, but he's also sent us hill climbs from Dune in Scotland, club racing from Croft in England. So he sent us a range of absolutely everything, and we could, you could fill several magazines with Brian's stuff. Um, this particular month we've, we've focused on the 1979 British Grand Prix, some lovely, lovely shots of the BMW Pro Car paddock, which I have to <laughs> say irks me slightly because I turned up at the British Grand Prix on a coach from Manchester in 1979, first thing Sunday morning, there when the gates opened at half past five. But I missed the pro car race on the Saturday and didn't realise <laughs> it was on the Saturday, and I'm still very cross about it. Um, but this is just lovely. It, it still um, rankles. You know, uh, Brian, I don't know whether he was a critic, I don't think he was, but he's he's got some shots in the pits from during practice, and uh, it's, it's nearly, well, it's all, it's, it's all stuff around and about the paddock, and it's just, you know, it's the people, the dress sense. I mean, nowadays, Quite often, when we take pictures, yeah, you tend to crop out bits of. And uh, you try and it, hide as much you, you as you can. You whereas you try and hide, you know, crap ambulances and things. But actually, when you look back, you need makes. that stuff. You need that stuff in there for context. And just looking at this is, although the cars in the foreground are lovely, it's the stuff you can see in the background. You know, Austin what, maxi. What, Yes, an also spin <laughs> maxi. Um, what what people are wearing and just they're yeah, just general, the general decor of the day. And um, and as Jack correctly says. Alan Prost's almost 3 Martini is parked next to an Austin Maxi.
0: <laughs> You're quite right, it is those little incidentals, the fashions, the sunglass style, the, uh, the ad-
3: advertising board- hoardings. It's those sorts of things, isn't it, that, that yeah. just take transport you right, right, right back. I don't um, think we'd moan about single-make championships if the um, pro car still existed, though.
1: No, 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 we wouldn't. But, but, we have to, but when pro cars were around, I mean, there were only two or three one-make championships. It wasn't like. Now, when there's only two or three, yeah. you know, technically open championships, the world has reversed.
0: Well, I've always thought we should, we should start a campaign for the return of, um, of pro car.
1: I would want to go back and watch the bloody 1979 support race, yes. today, having missed it first time around.
0: Let it go, Simon, let it go. <laughs> um, turning the page, uh, Mark Hughes has uh, written a contemporary Formula One piece, essentially taking a sort of a midway through the season look at where we're at and and he's focused really on on the things that have happened which which we couldn't have predicted or didn't predict at, at, at the beginning of the season and we run through half a dozen of those uh, among them the emergence of um, of Leclerc as uh, as potential Ferrari driver uh we've looked uh, we look at McLaren and well the biggest story really for me is is the is the is the fall of McLaren and Williams and and not just <laughs> they're doing not, not doing particularly well, but just how badly they're doing. And I think, I think there's probably more to come in, on this particular story, but Mark, as ever, uh, looks at it uh, in pretty forensic detail. Uh, we've got Ferrari's, looks at Ferrari's rebound. Uh, I mean, it's a, great, it's a great sort of mid-season sort of take half-term stock, report. isn't it? Yeah, a half-term report, I'd say.
3: We'll be um, doing a full podcast with Mark in, in August as well. Great. So. We'll basically get him to tell us exactly what's happening, <laughs> and we'll provide the drinks and biscuits, I assume. <laughs>
0: Fantastic. When, 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 when will, will we be able to hear that?
3: I think that'll be in the summer break, so that'll be uh, yes, yeah, second week of August, I think.
0: Brilliant. Well, we'll put that out on the website. Um, uh, so watch this space.
1: I think it's also worth pointing. I mean, since Mark wrote this and since we went to press, um, he's done a very good an- analysis of Charlotte Clerks chances of getting a Ferrari job next year but of course the power train at Ferrari has changed since this was written with Sergio Marchionne stepping down very suddenly as a result of illness and I'm sure I speak for everyone around the table in uh, wishing wishing him well but um, it remains to be seen how the new power base at Ferrari will 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 direct direct things and whether the will actually be shoehorned in as we all thought he might be as early as 2019 but we'll see yeah
0: yeah exactly exactly moving moving on monterey car week fantastic array of cars this is the america's annual jamboree where Essentially, it seems like every car under the sun is is, is available and for sale. Uh, Very glamorous, very glitzy. Uh, We've got a full full report on uh, what's going on, how to get there, what the style lots are, uh, some fantastic pictures.
3: (laughs) How much they will cost you. Answer a lot. On that first advert page, uh, you've got a Mirage GR8, GT40 Mark IV and 500 Mondial. And we've profiled those online as well. So there should be lots of background and because they're all very interesting cars. The GR8 obviously, five five Grand Le Mans appearances, three podiums. Was it a win? No. Wasn't it wasn't a win. Not the GR8. Not this GR8. No. It was the teammate to the winning X Bell car. Right. Um, and it's got quite a long history. So too the GT40. So I would definitely get the website and read, them, read off on them. The GT40 is especially interesting because it's the G7 which everyone's looking at me quite Blandly around the table, but they're interesting cars. Well, I'm interested, <laughs> I I'm interested it, so in so that I Mirage. I have read what,
0: so, Gordon, how much, how, what, what sort of reserve
3: price on some of those cars, Jack? Um, I was more interested in the cars than the price. Or they are <laughs> more red in the middle. <laughs> <so. laughs> Basically,
2: he's got his plug in for the website and he didn't read his own words. No, I, I, <laughs> I
3: wrote two thirds of them.
0: So there you are. If you want to find out a bit more about uh, the cars that are going to be for sale, or if you're indeed, you're, I mean, many of our readers might be going to, uh, to Monterey to browse, um, you can have a look on our website and there are full uh, reviews of, of some, some of the lots that are going to be um, for sale there. Right, John Barnard, one of the most underrated designers.
1: I don't think underrated um, is, is necessarily the case, but I mean, overlooked perhaps simply because, He's been out of Formula 1 for so long. Yeah. Um, and yet, every Grand Prix car on the grid nowadays has a carbon chassis pioneered by John Barnard and a semi-automatic paddle shift gearbox pioneered by John Barnard. So his influence endures. But, I mean, I, I, before I had lunch with him, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, I have to say, I'd interviewed him once over on the telephone, once or twice, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, but my time in Formula 1, I sort of started covering it Full time, just as he was sort of drifting away from it. So I never really got to know him uh, properly in period. I wouldn't claim to know him now, but to have spent uh, a couple of hours with him, just chit-chatting about his past and um, the things he's done, was was fascinating. And he's a very engaging guy. Uh, He had a reputation in period for being quite difficult to work with. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that, because I've spoken to many people who worked with him and. You know, he didn't suffer fools gladly.
0: Well, that's exactly the phrase I heard used about him was that, yes, he didn't suffer fools, right. Um, Mm.
1: But he was absolutely charming company. Uh, When we had our lunch, we chatted about everything from him working with washing machines to the new biography that's coming out, or is actually already out, um, and all the racing cars he's worked on, the people he's worked with. He had some very forthright views. And I also recommend the Italian he chose in Wimbledon, that was very good too. (laughs) But, um, yeah, uh, a really all, enjoyable experience.
0: So, of, of all the things he did, what, what, what would you say is, is, is sort of the most
1: significant? Carbon uh, chassis. Yeah. I think, if you look at the accident that John Watson, I mean, a lot of people were slightly sniffy in period about what, car, what carbon would do, how carbon would react if a car was thrown at the scenery at you know, seriously high speed. And John Watson, unwittingly, put that to the test in the 81 Monza, Italian Grand Prix at Monza, when he had a massive accident, tore the car in half. Engine and gearbox finished up on one side of the track and the carbon tub finished up on the other with Wattie still in it sort of cussing with a mild Northern Irish lilt and flicking his seatbelt and hopping out. And I think that yeah. Yeah. was the moment that everyone thought, blimey, and you know, within a couple of years, you know, pretty much everyone had gone to, gone to carbon. And it's, it was just a massive safety, the car was so much stronger than a bunch of steel tubes or an aluminium tub, um, and I think that, in particular, I mean obviously the yeah, semi paddle shift box is more efficient, gives you yeah you more efficient foot space, only two pedals, blah blah blah. But yeah, I think carb- a carbon, the carbon chassis is the thing that for me stands out as the absolute you know career high. Yeah. It's, 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 Ch- it's
2: changed yeah. the whole face of Everything. the whole engineering,
1: has not yeah. it? Yeah.
3: And beyond that, because um, I believe they used footage of the accident, um the following week when they were presenting a case for using carbon in planes. And the
1: and
0: yeah. In the, yeah, that's right. Wow, okay. Lyndon, I mean, we, you, you were there to take the portraits. I mean, I for, wasn't. for those of you no, with I, the. I.
1: I no, they like my portraits. I'm are afraid. they? <laughs> I wasn't invited to that lunch. You were busy somewhere <laughs> else. No, I'm afraid the portraits were mine. So
0: well, okay, I'm gonna plow on with this line of questioning then. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you <laughs> usually take the portraits I usually, yes, for lunch What's with What's wrong with Simon's portraits? Go on, give us a just tell us a little bit about, you know, what it's like. I mean, some of these, these we've heard about John Barnum, not suffering fools. I mean <laughs> there, there were some big names that we'd sit down and have lunch with. I mean, yeah. how are they to take portraits of, especially, you know, in a in a relaxed and informal environment, which we try and create obviously with the with the lunches?
2: For me it's slightly different to how With Simon on his own doing it, because obviously Simon's interviewing them, talking to them, and then having to stop interviewing or hoping that someone's going to carry on talking when he picks his camera up, you get that disjointed, oh, you've got your camera out, Simon, I'll just pose for a photo. Whereas for me, I just let Simon or whoever's hosting the lunch or breakfast or supper or whatever we've been invited (laughs) to, um, I can just shoot away. So I can capture everybody just completely ignoring me and that's the easiest way for a more relaxed um, kind of photo from my point of view because if they're, d- if they're slightly conscious of having their photo taken in the first place, if they're chatting away and, ignore- and, and you're the other end of the restaurant on a long lens, it's slightly creepy <laughs> shooting style, but um, yeah, it's just nice to not be in their face when, when, you're, when you're photographing them because you just get that much more relaxed. I've, I've,
1: had to, I've had to shoot a few of my own lunches when Linda's been away on other jobs. And it's, it's completely, I mean, the way I try to do it is to just keep the conversation flowing. And once they're off and running on a point, I'll pick the camera up discreetly. But you can't really hide a, d- a DSLR That's camera. And but it's several times I've noticed well, they're, they're being very expressive and think great. They're waving their arms around, they're opening their mouth, they're opening their eyes. They do, they're doing things, facial expression is ten a, ten a penny, excellent. Pictures and as soon as you pick the camera up, they, they, stop. they, they stop. So you always have to say, "Look, can you story? I'll just put the camera down. Can you please carry on talking as you were? Use your hands. Carry on with the facial expressions. Just imagine there's no camera here. And then once I've got going again, I'll pick it up. And usually, at the second time of asking, they they will they will keep going. Yeah. But I'm always I'm always kind of sitting there wishing, because the alternative would be to just put the camera down, switch the tape recorder off and go and sit on the other side of the restaurant, but then they're not going to do anything. So its uh, I'm always grateful when London is there. Well, we, had, we, had,
2: we had the complete, like, like you say, with the the whole hand gesture and everything, We Simon and I did a lunch, or did a breakfast earlier this week, or last week, wasn't it? And who we were breakfasting, as soon as he started moving his hands, Simon knew all he was going to hear is click the, the click camera click shutter click going click off click. because of the <laughs> expressions and the hand waving and and describing the race he was taking yeah. part in, so it, it's just it's all round easier to be.
0: And is there a difference? I mean, is there a difference between um, drivers who who may well be used to being in the public eye and are used to having photographs oh, totally. taken off themselves and camera and and background people such as John Barnard, who you know isn't you know used to so. being oh, you know, you'll, faced you'll get, by a camera.
2: You'll get the you know drivers who I mean, older drivers who have probably been retired for 20, 30, some even 40 years, haven't had that media training, whereas younger, like Peter Solberg, was just quite, tell me where to go, tell me what to do, I'll pose and do what you need me to do for the shoot. I can imagine, I mean, Simon's captured John perfectly, he's very relaxed in the images, but they're I've got not i moving his hand to, there as well, look. Exactly, <laughs> but they're not used to having a camera pointing straight at them all the time. Like you say, they are more back rooms. You just just, kind of talk to them, reassure them, make them, re- you know, just joke around with them.
0: Much easier working with cars, isn't it? Oh god, yeah, they <laughs> never answer back Children, designers, engineers, racing drivers, they park, they park where you put them. Now. Let's uh, let's move on. Um, Andrew Frankel's got his pick of uh, road cars this month, uh, including the uh, Ferrari 488 Pista and uh, a Mini, and also the Jaguar I-Pace. We go into Speed Shop. Fantastic array of cars here. We've got an E-Type. Uh, we've got the profile of uh, um, Melvin Rutter, the Morgan dealer. But my favourite has to be the restored BMC Transporter, which we... <laughs> it 's for sale and um, this was it was uh, it, it looked looking at the picture of it it reminds me of that kind of classic British sort of design the, 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 the pill, red pill box and the um, and, and the uh, and the red um, telephone box um, but this was a Uh, This is one of 50 here, it says, that were made to be driven around the UK and Europe serving as mobile classrooms in which mechanics were taught how to work on the then-new Mini and its A-Series engine. Lovely, um, it's a lovely piece of kind of British art, really, I would say.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, I think it's, uh, you know, we're we're all accustomed to walking to paddocks and seeing these, you know, million-foot-long transporters lined up three inches apart Perfectly symmetrical, but uh, and they all look the same apart from the colour schemes. Yeah. Back then, I mean, all the teams had trans. I mean, in the same way that the cars all look different, the trucks and transporters all look different. And uh, you can you
2: imagine the man driving it, just wearing a vest with a fag hanging out, and
1: taking <laughs> taking yeah, four taking four weeks to get to Calais from Dover,
2: yeah. Days <laughs> before set now um,
0: uh, some auctions. Then we've got uh, we move into Garageista. Um, now I'd like to just draw attention, if I can, to the uh, the Garageista section where we are inviting individuals and companies um, to contact us if they have undertaken uh, a restoration of a race car or, or a road car. That they think is um, is particularly interesting and has a, an interesting history, and, and they'd like us um, to um, report on it. This month we've got a Ferrari. Well, I say a Ferrari. It's a, it's a Dino which has been um, met, messed around with, but uh, we've also got a Jaguar E-Type lightweight, and and great stories. And it's the the idea is that these restorations tell the story. Um, of the car uh, as well as as well as the restoration, and um, uh, uh, we are we are looking for for more subjects. So if you've got one or you know of anyone that might be interested, please do contact us. The e- email is at the bottom of uh, of each of the stories, and it's also um, uh, on our website if you want to have a look there. What else have we got? Oh yes, Simon, you reminded me of your favourite story. I know we were just going to talk about the features this month, but fantastic piece in Historic News. Which is us dabbling a little bit in politics, as Ben Elton once said. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sam, this is a great story from you. This is Verhofstadt, uh, the, um, the EU negotiator, who you managed to track down at a Formula Junior race. Um, sorry, it wasn't. It was at Brands Hatch, there, wasn't it? Um, yeah. tell, tell us, tell us how that came about.
4: Well, it's not a story you're going to read anywhere else. I, <laughs> I hate to toot my own horn and our horn, um, <laughs> but. Apparently, there were quite a lot of reputable journalists from other outlets looking for him, asking political brands, journalists. Yes. Yeah. From, when from I approached to, from where? Uh, BBC. Was the one BBC. Of them. Yeah, we, the we BBC. We out yeah. the BBC.
1: Yeah, the BBC, the BBC didn't want to talk about Formula Junior. Apparently, no. I think, I think that was the
4: key. <laughs> I think they missed the bigger story there. So I went up to him and he was like, "Nope, I'm not talking to you." And I was like, "Look, I promise, I'm not going to talk about politics at all." And, uh, and then he said, "No," again. So it took a lot of uh, negotiation on my part, but I got through to him. You should get a
1: job with the Brexit. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah,
0: it'd be scary picking a side, but yeah. I should have. I should have actually in my introduction, rather garbled introduction there. I should have said this is Guy Verhofstadt, the former. Um, Belgian Prime Minister yep. and Chief EU Brexit, Brexit Negotiator, negotiator. Yeah. Um, not Michel Barnier. Uh, he's, he's 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 someone else, but yeah. uh, but this guy. Um, so so what, what was he like? To when he, when you tracked him down and and, and um, got a tape recorder in front of him, what, what was he like?
4: Incredibly relaxed, actually, and it's so weird. I didn't expect him to be that passionate about elders. <laughs> he he I don't know if he was reading the Wikipedia or if he'd just finished that book that he mentions here, which uh, tells the whole story of it. But uh he rattled off every single fact about Elva, its beginnings, its lawsuit well, not lawsuit, but a little feud with Lotus. It was incredible and, and uh he's very honest. He said that I bought it because it's cheaper than a lotus. But then he went into it, how passionate he actually was about it. So but, yeah, he's a thoroughly pleasant guy as well, I'm really, you know, fun to talk to. And I'm
1: trying okay, yeah. to think, has there ever been a story in motorsport before about a former Belgian prime minister? I suspect not.
4: This might be another first.
0: I don't know, every time I say that, somebody always finds that there has been, in <laughs> well, fact, yeah. in n- 1943. <laughs> <laughs> um... Well, listen, I don't know about you, but I, I, I feel a little bit more optimistic or sanguine about our Brexit negotiations,
3: knowing that, um, for that the Formula
0: junior, <laughs> junior driver with a patent for is the, on the other
3: side. I think the Formula Junior celebrations have been going on about as long as Brexit, though. <laughs> it's not much longer. Really. I think they've just finished this weekend, I think. Have it they? came to an end, yes. Oh, that's, that's hopeless. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, and on that note, uh, we will draw to a close uh, this month's edition of the uh, Motorsport Magazine issue preview podcast. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, uh, I hope you enjoy the magazine. Um, if you haven't got it, please go out and buy it. Um, it's in All all Good News Agents. Um, and uh, we will uh, talk to you again at this time next month um, with the October issue uh, preview, which we're uh, working hard on uh, as we speak. Goodbye.